We are continuing our series in the Gospel of Matthew this morning that we're calling Follow Me. Today, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. Uh, we're calling this Beyond Justice. Now, in the previous weeks, we've looked at passages where Jesus calls us to uh, a deeper righteousness, a uh, righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes. Specifically, we've been called to uh, be salt and light, right? To not only be righteous, but to do good in the world by and proclaim the gospel. Uh, we've been called to uh, deal with our internal anger, not just limit our, our actions, not just what we do with that anger, but actually deal with it inside. Uh, to deal with our lust, not just avoid acting on it. Um, the internal matters, right? We've been encouraged to be men and women of our word and not just fulfill contractual obligations, right? To let our yes be yes and our no be no. That's kind of where we've been. And today we're going to look at passages where Jesus calls us to follow him beyond justice, what I'm calling beyond justice. Um, it's kind of a, a, a new idea, or it's, a, it's how I'm packaging the idea, at least, is, uh, is calling it beyond justice. Because justice is very basic, right? It's very black and white. It's almost a mathematical system, right? That there is wrong done, um, and then it needs to be punished accordingly. Um, and then, and if you are wronged, that you need to have commensurate uh, retribution. But the question that Jesus is going to pose today is, what if we went beyond justice? Is there something better? Is there something that God has for us that is beyond just a, a evening of the scales, right? That's why we think about the justice system. One of those symbols is those scales, because it's meant to be that the scales need to balance. Um, if wrong is done, there needs to be commensurate punishment. Um, and Jesus is saying, what if there's something more than that? That's all well and good, but what if there's something beyond um, just that kind of justice? And we'll look at first verses 38 through 42, eye for an eye. It says, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So again, we see here Jesus quoting the law of Moses. Specifically, he quotes Leviticus chapter 24. And actually, there's a couple different places where this, uh, a version of this law is written, but one is in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 17 through 21, where it says this, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. So this is the as basic and cold as justice gets, right? The scales of justice must balance. And, and we even find um, places here where, where Moses gives um, trial law, right? In, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 through 21, it, it talks about how this should be uh, tried. It says a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. 
If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties are to dispute to the dispute shall appear before Yahweh, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit such an evil among you. Your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So we have these, we have all these laws here that, that give it very basic justice. And, and frankly, it's where a lot of our justice system, even to this day, is based in these laws and based, based in, in these biblical Old Testament laws, the law of Moses. So the question then is, why is Jesus addressing these? If he says, you've heard that it was said, and he quotes these good laws, these just, fair, righteous laws, um, were they insufficient in some way? Are they wrong in some way? What is the issue that Jesus is dealing with, with here? And frankly, no, they're not wrong. There's nothing wrong with them. Um, they're not insufficient. Jesus isn't saying that they're wrong. Um, it is justice. This is justice. Uh, but the thing is, justice was meant to provide satisfaction for the injured party and deterrence for prospective wrongdoers. That's what uh, it says in Deuteronomy verse 20 there. This says the rest, those who see this, these things, shall hear and fear and never again commit any such evil among you. Um, it's, it causes deterrence. It uh, provides satisfaction for those who are injured or hurt in this way. Um, and it is the, it is just and, and right for a society. Now, the difference is, um, that Jesus is saying that for God's people individually, that for those that follow, that, that want to please Yahweh, that want to be like Yahweh, um, not as a society necessarily, but as individuals, there might be a better way forward. There might be a better way. It might be something that we can move, um, beyond justice. And Frank, and then he gives, Three illustrations of how to live beyond justice. So like kind of three scenarios. They're not meant to be all-encompassing. It's meant to be three examples of ways that we can live beyond justice. So let's look at those now. The first illustration Jesus gives is this example of being slapped, right? He says, if, the, if your brother slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Um, and this is classic, right? We, we, we know this example. We've heard this example so many times. And there are, there are a lot of different um, explanations you've probably heard about why um, culturally the second slap was more offensive. Right? For example, if you're being slapped on the right cheek by a right-handed person, they're slapping with the back of their hand. Um, and as, as an inferior, it's almost like a looking down on someone. Um, so to turn the other cheek then invites them to slap with an open hand, which is more of like a, a an equals kind of a thing. And so it's it's saying like, you know, even you hit me again in this way. Um, there, and there's even, there, there's just all kinds of explanations that I've heard um, of why culturally um, this was especially offensive. But here's the deal. Um, any culture, any uh, situation, any two people getting slapped is always offensive. And a second slap is always going to be more offensive. Um, so I don't know that we have to get so nitpicky about why culturally this is particularly offensive. Um, it's really offensive in, in pretty much any culture at any time. Um, 
and offering to allow someone to slap you a second time also has the same impact across all cultures, right? It's an unexpected. If you slap somebody or somebody slaps you, um, they do not expect you to say, do you want to give the other cheek a shot? That's not the expectation. It's very unexpected. The expect, expected reaction is either to uh, run away or fight back, right? That classic fight or flight. Um, you're going to have a little bit of a shock when you get slapped in that way. And your natural reaction is either going to be to fight back or to run away. But to stand there and say, would you like to hit me again, um, is certainly going to be unexpected. The next example he gives is this example of, um, of the tunic and cloak, right? He says, if your brother sues you to take your uh, uh, tunic, give him your cloak as well. And so this, uh, we have to, to explain a little bit about the, the garments of the day. Most people wore only these two garments. They would wear a tunic underneath, you can kind of see like in these pictures, and then that cloak would kind of be over top of it. Um, and, and most people would only have those two garments and have very few backups. Maybe someone would have an extra tunic, maybe someone would have an extra cloak, but for the most part, kind of wore the same clothes all the time. And certainly the outer garments, you would only really have one. Um, obviously very rich people would have more, but in this situation, someone's suing you, they're going to take your, your tunic, all you're really going to have left is your cloak for most people. So to offer your cloak as well is to leave yourself naked practically. I mean, it's some, maybe some undergarments you might have, uh, but you're, you're going to be out of, out of clothes and out of luck. For, for the most part. You're not going to have other options. It might take you a little while to get enough money to buy another one. Um, it's going to be a very difficult situation for you for a, a while here. Um, and so Jesus says, hey, if somebody wants to take, so you take your cloak, your tunic, offer your cloak as well. Essentially offer all that you have in, in, in many ways. And then the third thing, third example he gives is uh, going two miles, right? He says, if someone makes you go one mile, go another mile. Now, this is very specific to the culture um, of the day because, um, you know, you can think, well, in our day, how would someone make me go a mile? Uh, what, what is that situation? Well, it was very specific to, um, to living under Roman rule because under Roman rule, any Roman soldier could compel any citizen or any uh, person in the lands that they were occupying uh, could compel them to carry their pack for one mile, uh, but no more than that. And so uh, that was just Roman rule. So that would that was a reality that people lived with in Jesus' day, that if they were walking along the road and they saw a Roman soldier come up to them asking for their pack, um, that they would have to go uh, carry it for a mile. And and that, think about what a bummer that would be to realize all of a sudden you have to go a whole mile out of your way on foot um, carrying a heavy load. Um, and so Jesus is saying here specifically, if, um, if you're going to go, if he's going to make you go a mile, go another mile. If this happens to you and really when this happens to you, go two miles. So then the question in all three of these scenarios is what would happen if you actually did these things or things like this? If you did something like this, what would the reaction be from the people around you? What would be the reaction of the people that are, are seeing, you know, seeing you do this or you're doing to them. Um, most likely it would cause the other person to stop and question their actions, question the whole situation. It would almost immediately de-escalate 
everything that's going on, right? If you slap someone, they offer, offer to let you slap them again, your immediate question is going to be, wait, why, why are they doing this? What, why aren't they fighting back? Why aren't they running away? What is going on? What am I doing? Why did I even hit them in the first place? Um, if you say, oh, no, you, you want my tunic? Go ahead and take my cloak as well. Leave me naked. Um, the natural question is going to be, do I really want to do this to this guy? What? Why am I doing this? Do I need? Do I really need to do this? What? What? What can I do to make this right? Should I really be doing what I'm doing? Um, it's a it's certainly a strange situation for a man to start stripping and offering you all of his clothes. Um, and then you know that soldier situation. The soldier compels you to go a mile. You go, well, let's keep going. I I, I can do two. Um, he's going to go. Why? What would compel this man to carry my pack for an extra mile? Most of the people that I ask to do this hate it. They, cl they complain the whole time. They grumble. They whine about what they have to do and why they're, how they're being, you know, um, how, how they're being uh, compelled to do this and they don't want to do it. Um, and, and so all of these is going to cause people to, to question. It's going to kind of put the brakes on a situation and, and cause it to, to shift entirely um, to a new um, conversation. And Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, where he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Paul says right there, it's going to give this effect of, it's going to almost be like you're heaping burning coals on his head. It's more uh, frustrating for them to see you not fighting back, to see you being loving in the face of, uh, their animosity than uh, than anything that you might do in in retaliation. He says, "Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good." Now, the question that we might ask is, if God wrote these laws of justice, why does Jesus ask us to go beyond them? Why does He say that in our individual lives we might not just stop at justice? We might do something that's beyond justice. We might. Um, live in a extraordinary way. Well, the the bottom line reason might be that that God never enacted justice on the people of Israel. In His relationship with the people of Israel, He never enacted justice on them. And really, for all human beings, not just that that we have direct evidence of that, but really for all human beings, God has never given us the justice that we demand of other people. He has always been gracious, merciful, forgiving. Um, with us. And, and this is how, of course, he introduced himself to Moses. If we remember back to our study in the book of Exodus, in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, God passes before Moses and declares his name. And when he does that, here's what he specifically says. It says, Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, in forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers 
on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is how God introduces himself. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh is a God merciful and gracious. It's the first qualities that he, that he lists. Being merciful, withholding the punishment that we rightly deserve, and gracious, giving us blessing that we do not deserve. That he's slow to anger. That he's patient with us in spite of our rebellion. That he forgives iniquity and transgression. But that he, that he um, makes a way for our sin to be atoned for. And yet, he says, but he will by no means clear the guilty because justice has been done. Justice has been done on the cross. That Jesus' death on the cross is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That it paid the price that we rightly should have paid. So justice is done. Our sin is not just erased um, with nothing happening. It's erased at great cost. It's erased at the cost of Jesus' life on the cross. That he suffered and died an innocent death that he might pay for our sins. So that's, just, that's the scales balancing because of his sacrifice for us. God doesn't just clear the guilty. The guilty's sin is paid for. And that creates the possibility of him forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. So the, the key is that when you refuse to retaliate, you send the message that Jesus died for that sin. When you're with another person and you refuse to retaliate, you refuse to take vengeance, you refuse to do to them what they rightly deserve, to enact that justice, you send the message that Jesus already died for that sin. It's so important that we remember in our lives that, that Jesus didn't just die for the sins that we commit. He also died for the sins that are committed against us that his death paid for those sins as well. So that when we're wronged, we can be reminded of that, that just like God forgave my sin, he forgave the sin of that person who hurt me. And that can be the most powerful thing as we consider, can we forgive? Is it possible for us to forgive those who hurt us? We'll look next here at verses 43 through 48, following the section, Sons and Daughters of the King. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus again opens this section by saying um, that, that you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now here, it's a little bit interesting because he, he quotes the Old Testament in saying that, that you are to love your neighbor. Um, that's all over the place. Uh, one example um, is, is here in Leviticus 19, verse 18, where he says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. That, that phrase of you shall love your neighbor as yourself, that's, that's all over the place. That's clear. That's obvious. We know that that is, is in the law. 
But he says specifically there, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And that is, is maybe a, an addition by, by someone later on, or at least an implication um, that gets added in there. Because we could say that this verse is saying that, right? He's saying specifically uh, not to take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, right? He's saying don't, don't take vengeance against your own kind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, so you could infer that that means that you can hate your enemy. But you're by no means commanded to hate your enemy. It's more just common knowledge or common uh, wisdom that, that you hate your enemies. That's what they're for, right? That's why they're there is for you to hate them. Um, that might be the closest that we could get with that. But this, this idea of love your neighbor is all over the place. But it's more like that's what people do. They, they love those that, that love them. They love their neighbors. They love the people that are close to them. And they hate their enemies. That's what you do with enemies. You hate them. Uh, but specifically here, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's a hard thing to do because people don't become enemies for nothing. People don't become enemies just for, uh, you know, because they're such a nice guy. They're, they're so nice to you and they do such... Uh, so many favors for you, uh, right? No, they become enemies because there's some animosity, there's some grudge, there's some problem that has arisen that you might consider someone to be your enemy. Or maybe they just don't like you for some reason. Maybe you're not even sure, but it's like there's animosity there. And I know that almost everybody would say, well, I don't have any enemies. I don't, I don't have any enemies. Um, but if you really search your heart, I think you'd find that that's not true. There are people that May, while you might not use that word, that's certainly the role they play in your life. While you might not say, um, they're my enemy, um, that's certainly the relationship. It's a, it's a negative relationship. And then oftentimes, um, our, our enemies are people that we don't even know, right? People that we're not, we don't have a personal relationship with. Um, it might be a group of people that we go, well, they're kind of on the other team, right? I'm on this team and they're kind of on the other team. Um, in, in all sorts of, of areas, right? In all kinds of different whether demographics that you might break down um, where you say, well, that's the other side and this is my side and I hate people that are like that. I hate people that have that label on them. Um, they are my enemies. So we all have enemies of, some, of one form or another um, and Jesus is commanding us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Pray for those who make our lives more difficult. That's hard to do. That's a hard call that Jesus gives us here. But he gives us some motivation, right? He says this, that we should do this. He says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then verse 45 starts with, so that. And these are always very important um, things to look for in scripture. When he says things like, so that, or therefore, we want to look at what is the connection? What is being, what connection is being made there? Why should we love our enemies? What's the point? Uh, to what end do we love our enemies? Um, and he says specifically here, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. And we can add in there sons and daughters. Uh, sons and daughters of your father who is in heaven. He's saying essentially, love your enemies because that's the kind of thing that God does. And Jesus says that when we love our enemies, we're reflecting the heart of our heavenly father. This is something that we all understand. We all um, like to look for family resemblances, right? We like to look for familiar resemblances. 
um, even when a baby is first born, right? The question is, well, who do they look like? Who do they look like? I always think, well, they don't really look, they, they barely look human. So I don't know that I could say that they look like the, the mom or the dad, right? <laughs> but eventually they start to grow, fill out a little bit, and then they start to go, oh, I think they've got, I think they've got dad's eyes. I think they've got mom's nose, right? You start to kind of try to figure those things out. We love to look for those resemblances. And then as they get a little older, we like to look for, oh, you know, oh, look, they don't like tomatoes either. I don't like tomatoes. That's the, we have that in common. There must be something in our DNA that we just don't, we like the same things or we don't like the same things. Um, we have to look for little mannerisms, little ticks that, that they have in common. Um, and then, Obviously, character. We like to look for things in a family that a family has certain characteristics. Maybe they're a lot of fun. Maybe they're uh, very giving, right? There's all kinds of different things that we can say, this family, this family is like this. They're reliable, right? They're whatever. We can kind of look, we look to look for those things, not just physical features, but characteristics um, of a family. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, we want to be like our Heavenly Father. If we want to be like our Heavenly Father, um, we have to do the things that He would do. And one of the things that He does is He loves His enemies. He gives a specific um, example of causing the sun to shine and the rain to fall. He says, when you go out and experience nature, you're experiencing it equally, regardless of how good or bad you are. You're experiencing God's creation the same way, that He sends rain on the good and the bad, that He causes the sun to shine on the good and the bad. He gives those blessings equally across the board. And this has been true since the, since the fall. This has been true since the beginning. The fact that God has allowed the world to continue, um, even as we rebel against him, is a sign of his gracious love and mercy. The fact that the, the world keeps spinning, that everything keeps going, we keep experiencing all the goodness that God has made for us, is pure grace. Because as rebellious sinners, as people who have rejected our creator king. He has every right to just be done with us, but he chooses not to. So if we want to be Christ-like, we also have to be gracious and merciful, regardless of who it is or what they have done to us. The question comes down to, do we want to be ordinary or extraordinary? Because Jesus says, everybody loves people that love them. Everybody loves the, those that are close to them. Everybody cares about people in their family and their community. You can't, you, you can't say that that's special. You can't say that, that your love for people who also love you, whoever you have a reciprocal great relationship with, that, that that's this uh, extraordinary special thing. And that's what everybody does, regardless of, uh, and, and that's true to this day. Right, gang members are are great with each other, even if they're the most murderous gang you've ever met. Did you ever knew that they 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 kill all kinds of people within the people that are in their gang? They're going to be tight with them. They're going to be loving with them. Pick the worst group of people that you've ever that you you can possibly think of. Within that group, they're loving to one another because that's what people do. That's the natural thing to do. And that's what Jesus says here. That's the natural thing. That's the ordinary thing. The question is, are you going to have an ordinary love or are you going to have an extraordinary love? Are you going to have the kind of love that God has? Um, and if we're going to stand out, our love must be extraordinary. We have to be generous. We have to be long-suffering with people. We have to be willing 
to suffer wrongdoing. We've been talking about how Jesus is setting the bar higher than we can jump. We talked about that last week, that, that throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus just continues to set the bar higher and higher and higher to where we go, man, I can't do that. <laughs> well, he sets now the bar firmly out of reach in the last verse here, where he says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, you know, can he, can he put it any plainer than that? We're not perfect. None of us are. Uh, but perfection is the standard, and God is per- and godly perfection is that right? Perfection, pure righteousness—that's the standard. And the truth is, we can only achieve this kind of perfection by accepting the righteousness offered to us at the cross. That's the only way that we can ever reach this level of perfection is by accepting the free gift that Jesus offers us on the cross. That He died to pay the price for our sins. Paul puts it like this in Philippians chapter 3. We'll close with this. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Let me pause real quick and explain what Paul's talking about here. Because when he says, I count everything as loss, he's counting his achievements. He's counting his righteousness as loss, which was extraordinary. He had an extreme level of righteousness. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He had done everything right in his life. He had tried, he followed all the commandments almost perfectly. He had memorized vast swatches of the Old Testament. He was, he was trying his hardest and he was doing really well. And yet he came to the end of himself and realized, I am not good enough. I'm never going to be good enough. And instead, I'm going to count all of that, all of my achievements, everything that I've done to show how righteous I am, that's all counted as loss. That's nothing to me anymore. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. This is everything that I had, everything that I've accomplished, everything that I've done, I count it as rubbish if I can only have Christ. That's what I need. I don't need my efforts. I need his efforts. He says, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So that's the only righteousness that I ever need. Wrap it up with this. How should we then live? Three takeaways from today. Number one, rely on the forgiveness of Jesus as you seek to look beyond justice. The only way we can we can look beyond justice. The only way we can live in that kind of extraordinary way, allow someone to slap us on the face and then ask for another. The only way we can live that way is by relying on the forgiveness of Jesus, recognizing the fact that we have been forgiven of our sin, and so we can forgive others even when they don't ask for it. Number two, seek to emulate the extraordinary love of Jesus. Jesus has has extraordinary love for us. Can we have that kind of love for others? Can we share the love of Jesus with those around us? And number three, allow Jesus to be your perfect righteousness. Stop trying to find righteousness righteousness on your own. Stop trying to to be good and, and have that be what you're basing your worth on, but let your worth be based in his righteousness, that he is the perfection that we seek. Would you pray with me now?
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the fact that we aren't good enough, but that Jesus is, that he died for us, that we might live, that we might have that righteousness that he has for us. May we rely on you more and more every day. In your name we pray. Amen. Betrayed, took the bread and breaking it, he said, This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next, he took the cup and blessing it, he said, This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me.